Father, once again, we come to your word. Not human documents. Not the works of our hands. But the word of God. And Lord, we believe that you supernaturally inspired the authors of the scriptures to record your word um, to speak to us in our world. Not just in the world where it was written, but the world we live in today. But the process of us going from there to here and hearing your spirit can be difficult. So open our, 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 our eyes, our hearts, our minds. Help us to see through the eyes of the original audience and then to see through our own eyes as the church and as families and as individuals here today in our current world. We pray that you would be glorified in all we do and say. And we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, uh, if, you, if you haven't picked one up, there's still several copies of the, the paper study guide. If you prefer one that's, in, uh, that's paper and physical and tangible, um, it's funny, uh, I often refer to now, and I picked this up from, uh, I'm a science fiction reader, I like to read science fiction, so um, um, anyway, uh, there's, a, there's a book, a particular book where they talk about the difference between cyberspace and meat space. And somehow or the other, I picked up referring to the real world as meat space. So if you want to read it in meat space, there's paper copies. If you want to read it in cyberspace, uh, there's a link on the website. You can, you can download the study guide. Um, but uh, we're in the book of Deuteronomy uh, as we build toward Resurrection Sunday. And uh, we have this study guide. goes through every weekday, Monday through Friday, um, passage of Deuteronomy to be read, and then some commentary about the context of the passage that we're reading. Um, it, most people assume that Deuteronomy is kind of this, um, you know, it, it, like we talked about, you get to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, it's like, oh, these lists and build this and all that. Uh, Deuteronomy is very intentional, um, but it was very definitely written to be read aloud. Now, we're not going to do that, um, although that would be interesting. Um, it's written to be read aloud, and it, and it uses, this week we'll talk a little bit about portable texts and how, um, how Deuteronomy, if you, if you notice something is being repeated in Deuteronomy, that's usually a cue of the cycle of how it's being written, um, how it's supposed to be understood. And things will be introduced and then left alone, and then they'll come back to it, um, and they'll expand that idea. Um, often there's kind of refrains like choruses that keep getting repeated. You go, didn't they just say this? Why are they wasting all this time? And if you remember that in the ancient world, writing was a, a, a pretty cost-intensive thing, so they have a reason for every word that's being written. Um, but this morning we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 1, uh, and we're going to hit an episode uh, that is uh, recorded both in Deuteronomy and in Numbers. Uh, the book of Numbers uh, records this, and it is the moment when the people of Israel come to the border of the promised land. They come to the border of Canaan. Uh, and in order for you, we're, I'm going to put a picture up, pictures up in a couple minutes, but we're going to go ahead and read. We're going to, uh, chapter 1 and verse 19, Moses is delivering uh, the first of his messages that make up the book of Deuteronomy. And he says, then we set out from Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, that's, that's one of the words, names of Mount Sinai, 
uh, and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hills or the hill country of the Amorites. As the Lord our God commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you've come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, let us send men before us that we may explore the land for us and bring uh, let, that we may explore that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me and I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruits of the fruit of the land, and they brought it down to us, and they brought us word again, and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you've seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his sons all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. And the Lord heard your words and was angered and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, You shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn, journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Then you answered me. We've sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, Say to them, Do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen. You rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you, one of my favorite phrases in Deuteronomy, as bees do, and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept for the, before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you, so you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained 
there. Um, so God brings the people of Israel out of Egypt. All the stuff that we know about from Charlton Heston. All right? Brings us up the ten plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and, and providing for them in the wilderness and the curing of the water of Mara and, and, and they're, they're being taken care of. And then they come to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, and Moses goes up. There's thunder and lightning and, and Moses goes up into the presence of God and he receives the commandments and he receives the, the revelation from God how to build the tabernacle. They get all the information that they need. He comes down. We've got the golden calf. And God purifies His people and cleanses idolatry out. We tend to think that all of that took decades and decades and decades. And in reality, all of that happens in probably about three months. Uh, Kadesh Barnea is about an 11-day walk from Mount Sinai. Less than two weeks. And the people of Israel go through from Egypt all the way through, and you can read in Numbers and uh, talks about all the places that they go and where they camped, and they get to Mount Sinai. They have less than two weeks journey to go to the promised land. They get to the edge, and God says, go in, and somebody says, maybe we should form a committee. Let's, let's talk about the best approach to this whole promised land situation. And, and I, I picture this meeting, I picture Moses with his head in his hands going, guys, really? Now, this should not surprise you because they did this kind of thing all the time. They did it in Egypt while the plagues were happening. The people of Israel are like, well, what if God misses with the frogs or... You know, what if the flies eat us? Or are you sure about this blood on the lintel thing? I mean, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, they do it at the Red Sea. Moses says, God's going to deliver you. And they go, how? We should have just died in Egypt. That's their favorite thing. This is, a, this is like, like, I love the fact that the people of Israel are essentially modeled. In the Bible, they're called the sons of Israel, Beni Yisrael. And, um, and I just love that they're modeled after essentially um, a teenager, no offense, all right? But, you know, teenagers, teenagers uh, you know, that teenage protest, and they always hit the same thing. But I don't want to. Why don't you want to? I won't know anybody. It's not cool. You know, they go through the list, and I'm not up, on, up to date on all the, all the flim-flam or whatever excuses there were. When, it, when, I was, when I was young, I had my own list. I don't have anything to wear, um, you know. Uh, I wore combat boots my entire teenage years, so I don't know why I made that protest. I mean, I wore them with suits. Um, but the, uh, you know, because uh, I couldn't afford Doc Martens because we were poor. And, um, but we, you know, they, we have this set of, of things, reasons that we, we don't want to do this thing. And they, they're coming up with the whole thing. We're going to, you brought us out of Egypt and now we're going to die. You know, this whole thing. So they start with this committee and they send this committee and Moses says, okay, let's send the scouts. Now most Bibles translated as spies. The word is better as scouts. And they just kind of go up this north-south valley, and, and they're there, obviously, in the wet season. They're able to gather a bunch of produce. They bring it back. They say, this place is amazing. Oh, but by the way, uh, the people are enormous, and they have fortified cities. 
Um, they call them the Anakim. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff. We're going to deal with this. You'll, you'll see it in the study guide. There are a whole bunch of names of groups of people. We have no idea what these names mean, so they're just transliterated into English. Um, if you ask me, what does this mean? I'm going to tell you it's a group of people. We don't know what their name means. Um, but one of the things is the reference to the Anakim. Uh, the Anakim are these legendary warriors. They were the Canaanite version of Vikings. Okay? So that's the best way to depict them. We do know a little bit about them. Um, there seemed to have been, in among the Canaanites, there was a this kind of uh, cottage industry, I guess, of mercenaries. And that's what the Anakim were. They were... They were some kind of mercenaries that got hired by cities to protect them from invaders like, I don't know, the Israelites. And, and the Anakim apparently were these very formidable warriors that when you saw them, the sons of Anak, you, you were terrified. You're like, oh no, they're guarded by the sons of Anak. We, we can't go in there. I mean, those guys, they're serious, you know. I mean, they're not just, they're not just you know, your regular everyday Canaanites. They're the Vikings, right? And, and they, they seem to have been terrifying, and they seem to have been big. Now, when we read in the Bible, we read somebody's big, right? I mean, the, who's the first person? We talk about somebody being huge. Who's the first person we talk about in the Bible? Goliath, all right? Um, which, by the way, if you haven't hung around with me for any period of time, I love David, and one of the greatest things I love about David is that after he killed Goliath, the Gittites, Goliath's family, become his personal bodyguard. That tells you just how awesome David was, all right? He built a gang out of the brothers and cousins of the guy he killed. David's cool. Um, but uh, but this, the whole thing you read about Goliath being big, and you're, okay, Goliath is a giant. And then you read about these other guys who were also giants, and oh, they had these huge weapons. And then we read about the sons of Anak and how they're big and all this stuff. Don't forget that in a society like this where you have to hire fighters for you, mercenaries, you're not going to hire the little weak guys. You hire the biggest guys you can find. They're the bouncers of the ancient world. They are late Bronze Age bouncers. That's their job. The idea is to come out and look formidable, and a bunch of desert rat Israelites go, oh, we're not going to fight them. I mean, look at the size of them. I mean, they're huge. And that's exactly what they do. And so they see these, they go, oh, we don't, we're not going to be able to do this. Now, God has told them, I'm going to send you into this land. It's your land to have. You're going to live in the cities. You're going to conquer the people. But for some reason, they're not willing to accept that what God has called them to do. Just a few weeks after leaving Egypt, on the edge of everything that God had promised them, they choose the wilderness over the blessing. They choose the wilderness over the promise. Now, Moses describes the wilderness um, as the great and terrifying wilderness. Uh, in Hebrew, Hamidbar Hagidol Vaharoach. You guys are excited about that. Uh, literally, the terrifying large wilderness. I want you to get a context of what he's talking about. So I have a couple of pictures I brought from Israel. I want to show them to you. Um, these are taken from Matsada. Uh, which is a, a hilltop fortress in the wet season. This is from Matsada looking south, all right? Uh, so looking toward the wilderness. And you can see a whole lot of brown, all right? And then flip, go ahead and flip the next one. 
This is, the, this is Matsada looking toward the Dead Sea. All right, Matsada is down by the Dead Sea. It's in the wilderness, in the Negev, um, the wilderness um, of the edge of the wilderness. This is even technically considered the wilderness. This is more fertile than the wilderness. All right, this is what they're looking at, and it's a promised land. All right, you have to cross this. Uh, it's really fascinating because you go... This is below sea level, right? The Dead Sea is the lowest point on earth. Um, and you, you, you cross through this. Uh, by the way, we were there in January. It snowed in Jerusalem two days before we arrived. We dealt with ice and rain while we were there. It was 100 degrees and hadn't rained in years here when we got there. Okay? It is less than two hours drive from Jerusalem, okay? So what happens is you come up through this, this mess and then you come up over a ridge and there's Jerusalem and Jerusalem is completely different uh, ecosystem. And it is wild. If you ever go to Israel and you, you, you go to Jerusalem and Jerusalem is like a medieval uh, Jesus-themed amusement park. I'm not a big fan of Jerusalem, just just so you can't you can't go sideways without somebody hawking you an olive wood Jesus. Um, but uh, you go through Jerusalem, and then there's actually this tunnel. You go through a tunnel. When you pop out the other side, and my wife will tell you, I'm not exaggerating. This side of the tunnel, green, verdant, beautiful. You get in the tunnel, you go through it. You're on Mars. There's no green anywhere. It is gray sand, just like that. That's the terrifying, great and terrifying wilderness that they crossed for two weeks. They chose that. Do you know how long a few hundred thousand or two million people can live in that without God taking care of them? Ain't going to happen. There is nothing there, by the way. This, this is not photoshopped. This is what it looks like. It's brown and dead. The Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea for a reason. It's dead. There is nothing there. Um, and you can't grow anything in the soil, right? They're, they're, the soil is, is so salty. It's so saline. It doesn't grow, nothing. It's, it's completely and utterly dead. They chose the great and terrifying wilderness. In verse 19 you know, I, we set out and went through all the great and terrifying wilderness. I brought you somewhere where you could set up your lives, where you could build a city, where you could live, where I was going to run the Canaanites out. I bring you to this point, and what do you do? Now, in verse 21, it says, See, the Lord has set this land before you. Uh, take, go up, take possession as the Lord your God has told you. Do not Fear or be dismayed. The word fear there is the same word as in verse 19, the terrifying wilderness. It's the same word, same Hebrew word. He's saying, you came through fear. Now you have no need for fear. I'm going to take you into the promised land. And what did they do? They got afraid. God had brought them through fear to a place where they didn't need fear and they became fearful. Now we could pass judgment on them, but let's be honest. We've all done this. 
They get to the edge of Canaan. They see these people. They're terrified of them. And they say, we're not going to go up. Now, jo- uh, 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 Caleb and Joshua, uh, who are two um, uh, interesting individuals, uh, Caleb and Joshua are like, let's go. We can do it. Now, you can read in Numbers. They get all worked up about it. Like They're like, they, these two are the two guys in the meeting going, shut up. You guys stop. We can do this. I mean, they're, they're like jazz. They're ready to go. They're there. And everybody else like, no, I mean, look at it. I mean, it's just, I mean, if we do it, I mean, think of the cost basis. I mean, it's just going to be, uh, and then the giants. And I mean, then we got to scale city walls and there's so many mountains and, and we just stay here in the wilderness. And Caleb and Joshua are like, yeah, no, this is, and I always picture them. There's this, there's a passage. They bring a, 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 um, like a, a thing of grapes that's so big two people have to hold them. And I just picture Joshua and Caleb like eating grapes. Like, no, that's a terrible idea. We should go up. We should definitely go up. Shut up. Stop talking. We need to go up. And, and everyone's like, no, 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 no. Let's just stay in the wilderness. And so Joshua and Caleb get to go. Everybody else gets to stay behind. Um, and then Caleb, Caleb's got a great moment in the book of Judges. Uh, you read the, the first couple of chapters of Judges. Caleb just, he's, Caleb's awesome. Um, but they, uh, they have this situation where God has brought them through, out of Egypt, through fear, revealed himself to them. And what do they do? What's the problem here? I'll tell you where their fear came from. It's very simple. They failed to accept God's word unless it held up to their standards and expectations. They took what God said, and they went, well, here's our criteria we want God to meet in order to make this happen. Now, can you imagine um, walking into a bank, especially now, going, I found a house I like. Um, They're asking half a million dollars. I've told them that they're going to sell it to me for 125. I want you to give me a loan for $125,000 at 0.3% interest, payable back whenever I feel like it over the course of 75 years. That's what I can afford. That's what you're going to give me. Can you imagine the loan officer in that particular conversation? I mean, the laughter that would be generated by that request. Um, No, you're going to pay what the seller says he's going to pay, and you're going to pay the interest rate we've decided you're going to pay. We don't care what you think. We don't care what you can afford. They certainly do not care what you can afford. Um, you know, they, they have all these, you know, when you're in a position of somebody else setting the criteria, setting the situation, and you bring to it and you go, here's my list. Here's my list. Uh, we do this as kids. We all did this as teenagers. Our parents set an expectation rule, and it didn't matter how lenient your parents were. It didn't matter if your parents were like long-haired hippies um, who were doing all kinds of illegal stuff in the backyard. They still had some kind of rules, and um, whatever those rules were, at some point you ran up against them, right? And you, and you decided that your parents needed to parent you according to your criteria. Oh, come on, Mom. I am fill-in-the-blank age. I should be able to fill-in-the-blank of the activity, and if your mom was like my mom, she went, get back in that room, I'll hit you with a spoon. 
we're not in a position of authority to tell God these are the criteria for what you reveal to us. The people of Israel formed a committee and came back to God with what they thought was a reasonable proposition for what he was going to do. Now, just take care of us in the wilderness. We don't want to do that. He brought us out of Egypt so that we'd die. They failed to accept his word um, and instead judged his word by their standards and expectations. Why? Okay, they're afraid, all right? They start by setting their own standards and then they fail to take into consideration the fact that God was on their side. We do this all the time. We come up with the most conservative possible solution, the minimal amount of risk for us, because we tend to assume that God is at a distance watching. What was that song? Was it Bette Midler? From a distance. God! I wanted to punch everybody that sang that song. I hate that song with such an undying passion. It's, I hate it almost as much as I hate Les Miserables. And I really hate Les Miserables. Sorry, all you musical people. The songs don't rhyme. And they have no verses. It's just one big, long mishmash. It's white people rap. That's what it is. It makes no sense to me. Um, I also didn't like Hamilton. So you can just hate me now. I don't like musical theater. Uh, but to me, that song drove me nuts because of that line from a distance. God is watching. Really? And yet we think that way, don't we? God is good enough to save me in the eternal sense, but not good enough to guide me on the daily. He's not good enough to have given me direction on how to handle my life. Um, he could handle eternity. He's got all that stuff. But when it comes to my rules or criteria for how I should live my life, who I should be with, what things I should do, what, where, where I'm, I'm meant, that, that stuff, that's up to me. They did not take into consideration God's hand. They did not take into consideration that sometimes God just knocks the walls of cities down. They did not take into consideration that God takes disobedience very seriously. They set their criteria. They looked at the situation. They evaluated it from what we are capable of doing, not from what God was capable of doing and went, this is a bad idea. Let's turn around and go back. And then, my favorite part, then God says, he hears their words, they made God so angry that he swore in verse 34. Not the kind of swearing that we think of. But he says, that's it. Every single one of you except Joshua and Caleb are going to drop dead in this great and terrifying wilderness so that the ones who don't know the difference between right or wrong will grow up and they'll take the land. And now we, he doesn't mention this in Numbers, but, or in Deuteronomy, but in Numbers, the protest that they make is that the Canaanites will prey on our children. And in Deuteronomy, he picks that up. He goes, the ones that are supposed to be the prey, they will be the predators. They will be the ones that the Canaanites will fear. Not you, you bunch of weak-spined chickens. You drop dead in the wilderness. That's in the Hebrew. 
It's also not accurate because chickens were, were reared in, the, in Southeast Asia and were not in this world at the time. Anyway, you guys don't care. All right, so they say, he says, that's it. You're going down. Well, as soon as God threatens them with dying in the wilderness, suddenly they change their tune. No, 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 we're better. And you actually get this moment, right? In verse 21, you answered me. We have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight and everyone fasten on its weapons of war. Like they literally, Moses says, well, God says you're going to drop in the wilderness. And they're stumbling out of their tent, strapping on the shore. No, 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 we're going to do it. We'll take care of it. Too late. Too late. They go up into the hill country and God says, don't do this. I told you. The moment has passed. The opportunity is gone. Now, think about this for a second. Let's just think about this from a tactical point of view. Let's, let's forget the fact that we're dealing with ancient Israel. Um, now, the conservative estimate of how many Israelites there were is several hundred thousand. Now, we picture them as like all camped in one place. That's not how they worked. The reason that there was a column of fire and cloud that everybody could see, you have to take that kind of group of people, they're spread out over huge square miles of, of, of distance. So they can pasture their flocks, so they can feed, especially in that wilderness, they've really got to spread out. And, and so they're spread out all over the place. So they send in 12 scouts. They're all gathered at Kadesh Barnea, waiting to go into the promised land. How long do you think it took the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, all the people to notice hundreds of thousands of people gathered on their border? Had they gone in right when God told them to go in, they would have had the element of surprise. People would not have been behind their fortified walls. The soldiers would not have been ready. The sons of the Anakim probably weren't in position yet. The, the, wall, the doors probably would have been open. They would have gotten a foothold. They wouldn't have had to cross the Jordan River. They just have to go across a little brook, all right, which is a wadi, which means that it's not even filled with water all the time. They could have just crossed a brook, gone into, into Canaan, taken the first few cities, gotten a foothold, and then the conquest of Canaan would have gone very different. But when they dithered here and they started debating and they sent in tribes and then they're having their conference meeting and then they're discussing and now they're tumbling out of their tents strapping on their swords going no no god we changed our mind we'll do it by this point the army already knows they're coming they blew their chance wasting their time trying to judge god's revelation based on their own expectations Assuming God could not supernaturally do what a supernatural God can do. And they got driven out. This is proof, by the way, that it's not weird to be scared of bees. Right? He says, don't go up. And when they go, and they, in verse 44, the Amorites live in the country, came out and chased you as bees do, and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. Now what's really, really interesting, and I don't want to belabor this point, but they've actually found evidence of ancient beekeeping in southern Israel, southeastern Israel, that this was actually something that they did in this hill country of the Amorites. They, they have found evidence of beekeeping, um, which, is, which is amazing when you think about the Canaanites. Who would have ever imagined, you know, we got our flannel graph coloring book version of the Canaanites. Um, imagine Canaanites getting up in the morning and going to their beehives and checking on the honey. But it was called a land of milk and honey, right? That, by the way, is a description not of random honey, but of dairy and, uh, and a bunch of beekeeping, all right? That, that's, that's what they were doing. It's an interesting moment where the Bible is vindicated by history and archaeology. And then, of course, because God can't, he just can't pass up wordplay, he says, so you got run off like you were being chased by a bunch of bees. 
Now that, again, a beautiful image in my mind. Bunch of Israelites tumbling out of their tents, strapping on their swords. No, no, we're going to go. They run up into the hill country, and then they're running back going, leave us alone, leave us alone. Kind of a character, but truth. They realize, when they realize they had made a mistake, they tried to correct under their own power. They switched the object of their fear. So watch what the people of Israel did. They were afraid of the Egyptians. Moses led them out. They got to Mount Sinai. They're afraid of God. They're afraid of the thunder and voices, so they build a golden calf, so God's more manageable. He's easy to handle. God fixes that. They go, they take this walk, they get to the brook, they look at the promised land, God says, go in, they're afraid of the people of Canaan. And then God says he's going to kill them, now they're afraid of being killed, so they go out to fight the Canaanites, and they get chased away like a bunch of little girls who fell into a beehive. What do we draw from this? What's an application we can draw from this? We talk a lot about grace, God's grace, after we fail. Oh, God was so gracious. He forgave me of the mistake that I made. Oh, God will forgive you when you fall. And th those things are true. But we also need to learn a lesson the Israelites didn't, which was to accept grace before you do the stupid thing. That God's grace is not just about the forgiveness of my failure, it's also about instruction to keep me from failing in the first place. When God brings us to the edge of Canaan, when He brings us to the place that He has called us to be, and we dither and we put God in our box and we try to measure Him by our own standards and we, we, re we refuse to accept the supernatural power of God and then the moment passes by, we do something in our flesh and then we fail. We always want to go to God for grace after the failure when we should have been living in His grace when we came to the crisis in the first place. Did you know that Christ's resurrection is not just, and, and the work of God in your life is not just about the forgiveness of, the, of your sins, it's about creating discipline in your life to prevent you from falling into sin. That the promised land is not about something God gives us just because even though we failed, it's something that God gives us so that we don't fail. We talk a lot about grace, but grace is not just when I was stupid. Grace is also about making me wise. Now, we all stumble. We all make mistakes. But you should let those mistakes be the things, they should be the exception, not the rule. Now, we sit there and go, well, you know, you know, I... I, I'm always going to fail God. I'm always going to make the mistake. Whose standard are you following in that situation? Are you not following your own rather than accounting for the supernatural work of God?
we cannot allow our lives to exist on the edge of in and out of the promises of God. A believer has to take the step after step, trusting our God to do what only He can do. And then one day you wind up deep into Canaanite territory. And you realize that the only reason you're there is because God's hand was on you. That the only reason you've done what you've done is because you were trusting the grace of God. And there's no room for ego when the only way that you're having victory is His work. There's no room to say, we did this. I am the great and mighty. When the only hand that's brought victory has been His. But too often, too often we as believers, rather than being the people going into the promised land at the moment, we wind up being the ones being chased by the bees and praying for God's grace in our failure. Now, God's grace comes in our failure. Praise the Lord, it does. But God's grace also comes in His instruction and His discipline and His righteousness. I love that when Paul, when Paul describes the Scriptures to Timothy, he says, all Scripture is given by God and is profitable for doctrine. That's a positive thing, what to believe. Reproof, right? That's when you do something wrong. Correction, making something right. And instruction in righteousness, all right? Um, that's a positive thing. Two positives, two negatives. It's not just about when we're wrong. It's about keeping us right. It's about growing in Him. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Some days it feels like, Lord, we're, we're always right on the edge of the promise. Terrified to take the step. For some of us here, it's, it's about taking that step of, of taking the name of Christian, about following Christ. For some of us, it's about the comfort and ease of living in our own abilities. For some of us, it's just being tired, being worn out, being stuck in a rut. whatever it is, God, help us to trust in your hand, which is greater and more powerful than our own swords. When you bring us to the promised land, help us to trust the grace that brought us there that will take us through. We pray all of this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. My brothers and sisters, go in grace.